While there are political headwinds, I think there's so much to be excited about in terms of just the types of things that our leaders are thinking about. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week is a policy expert in all matters transportation. From its base in Washington, D.C., her organisation Enotrans advises the federal government, state governments, and local authorities. Brianna Eby led a major piece of research into road pricing and congestion charging last year, and it's that I most want to talk to her about. But I'm sure we'll also cover the wider political scene. So, Brianna Eby, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. First of all, perhaps you could tell me a little bit about Enotrans and exactly what it does. Right. So uh, the Eno Center for Transportation is a nonpartisan transportation policy think tank based in Washington, D.C. in the United States. Uh, And we provide professional development training and policy analysis for all modes of transportation at all levels of government in the U.S., um, as well as looking at the the public and private sectors. And so I, I sit on our policy team and so I conduct research and analysis for Eno. And so your your stakeholders are very much governments in, in the US or do you have a global remit? Yeah, you know, um, it, it has uh, traditionally been focused on US governments, again, at all levels. So, um, you know, a lot of federal uh, stakeholders, for sure, um, as well as, you know, state and local officials um, and uh, transit agencies and uh, departments of transportation across the United States. So, again, that's that's at all levels of government. Um, although we are, I will say, we're, we're starting to gain a little bit more international traction. Our, our work is focused um, at the national level uh, domestically in, in the United States. But we're, uh, for as one example, we're currently conducting a research project um, that looks at why it costs so much money and takes so much time to deliver rail transit in the United States. And we, for that research project, we conducted um, case studies of, uh, I think, let's see, it's eight, um, four domestic and then four international uh, uh, cities. So we, we looked at a couple of Western European cities um, as well as Toronto and Canada for that research. So increasingly looking at an, an international focus. And how did you become a, a policymaker for transport stuff? Well, I'm not a policymaker, but um, I, I conduct research and policy. Um, my, my background is a little interesting in that sense. So I actually come from a um, psychology and behavioral science background, educational background. And, um, you know, I'm, I always come from the perspective of, you know, having an interest in how people, so how individuals think um, about the actions that they take or the decisions they make. And uh, it's it's a perspective that I think is often lacking from from policy making or or decision making um, in a policy setting. And I I got into policy because I, I would love to see more of that perspective um, become introduced in the way that policy is designed. Because you know it's it's so fundamental to think about how people think about and, and in the case of transportation, navigate through the world in order to design policy that um, that really serves them. And so I think there's a lot that uh, that behavioral science or psychology can lend to governance. And, and really, we're only at the at the beginning of starting to see those two worlds collide. 
That's fascinating. I had uh, Rory Sutherland on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, who specialises in behavioural science, and he was um, verbally stamping his feet and saying <laughs> that the transportation models that are used are typically so wrong as to be actively harmful because they don't take into account behavioural science. They assume that people behave in ways that is you know, rational, but wrong because people are motivated by completely different things to the way that traditional transportation models assume they will be motivated by. Is that is that something that you've come across as well through the work you've done? I think so. I think um, again, it's it's just about in in the on the first hand gaining a perspective of how um, how people actually think about things and and you know looking at the pandemic for example and how just radically different or I should say how quickly behaviors changed when the pandemic with the onset of the pandemic you know commutes were totally upended and and you know um, for many people this is not the case uh, many people had to continue uh, commuting to work. Uh, our, our essential and frontline workers, but many office workers um, really changed their habits overnight, effectively, um, myself included. And I think that the the changes that were made are, are something that we can be looking to for lessons and how to better design transportation systems that that can meet different needs. Um, and again, some of that is sort of just happening by by default, and so. Um, you know, if if we don't need to be going into an office, then uh, we're not going to be commuting into an office. But I think we can learn a lot of lessons from how quickly people change their behaviors and and looking at the types of things that people did instead. So we saw a lot more uh, increases in in bike ownership and and in um, bike rentals. And you know, I, th I think that's a really telling example of the kind of um, behaviors that that people might shift to. Um, but we have to, to meet these behavior changes with, again, policy changes and in the case of better cycling, you know, improved infrastructure. And so that uh, planning certainly pl uh, plays a role in this as well. One of the really interesting things I see at the moment is that you know, you've now got a new-ish left-wing government promoting public transport, investing in railway infrastructure, pushing active travel, including cycling, which you just mentioned. Um, now, here on the other side of the Atlantic, we've got a government led by the other side of the political spectrum. You know, the Conservative Party in this country is more aligned to your Republican Party. Your your former president referred to our current prime minister as Britain Trump. I'm not entirely sure that Boris Johnson appreciated it, but he did. Um, and yet our government is oh, promoting public transport, investing in railway infrastructure, pushing active travel, more bike lanes. Is this a new consensus? Is this something that you're seeing on a, on a global level being elevated out of the political um, fray? And it's just this is now how it's going to be or not? That's an interesting question. I, I do think that a lot of um, uh, headwinds are, are sort of moving in the direction of uh, um, shared transportation or you know better better public transportation. I think just out of necessity. So people want to live in cities, and uh, you know, again, speaking of the pandemic, I think there have been a lot of narratives that that uh, that paradigm is going to shift. That people are going to move away from cities, and I think now we're starting to see. That's not necessarily the case. Maybe people are spreading out a little bit more, but I think the urban lifestyle and, and the desire to live in cities is, is not going away anytime soon. And so if that is the case, then it is imperative to be able to move people around efficiently and, and smart policymakers, whatever end of the spectrum they are on. And it's, it's a little more... Um, I would say black and white here in the US, but um, you know, I, I think to your point, I think uh, globally there 
is an under maybe beginning to be an understanding that um, you know in order to have cities that are that work and that serve people's needs and and that people want to be in um, people have to move around efficiently I think Paris is another really great example of um, making some smart investments in uh, I mean certainly bike infrastructure but also great improvements for uh, transit in recent years they're expanding their network and um, the recent announcement to eliminate car traffic from the city center I think these are all examples of things that are are their long-term um, investments in, in the future and uh, uh, prosperity of the city. So, um, you know, it's exciting to see these kinds of things happening. I'm interested in something you said just then about the, it might, it might not be the case that people are going to move out of, the, out of cities into, into rural areas, because it's certainly something you hear said a lot. And we're, we're obviously still emerging from the pandemic at the moment. So what is it that gives you reason to think that that, that trend might not turn out to be a trend? Where, why, why do you think that? I think it, it, it will probably vary. Um, and again, certainly some people uh, will, or I think the, the pandemic nudged some people to move out of cities. Um, that happened, at least here in the US that I've heard. I, I haven't been following this as closely elsewhere. But um, I also think that we've seen a lot of people moving to cities. And and the, the dynamic that's happening here in the United States is that we're seeing, um, again, I'm not sure about the in-migration versus out-migration, but um, at least in terms of uh, people that are moving out of cities, it's in the kind of more expensive cities, so New York and San Francisco, uh, whereas other cities are maybe not seeing quite the same um, shift out, outward of the city. Um, but I do think that, you know, there's there's much to be desired about living in cities and, um, uh, uh, you know, that's it's just something that's not going to change in, in quite the same way that was maybe expected. Well, I'm a very enthusiastic Londoner, so it'll take a lot to get me out of this place, <laughs> I tell you. Um, now, one interesting thing is about a specific topic I'd like to talk to you about, which is road pricing. And I know you've done some work on this, because here in the UK, we probably have the most anti-car government in my lifetime, in terms of many of the policies, you know, moving committing road space oh. to bikes from 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 um, from cars, um, investing in public transport, etc. But there's this kind of deathly silence on the question of actually charging road users uh, for the space that they consume. And I find it fascinating because it feels to me, in my my little head, it feels so obvious that that's a good idea. What 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 have you learned from the research you've been doing on road pricing as to you know, why, why, why isn't this? Why isn't this a thing? Why, 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 why is this? Why is it even a question that we that we should should or should or shouldn't be charging road users for this road space they use? Yeah, it's a good question, and, and I'll, I'll first start by just really quickly defining. So, um, my organization, you know, put out a report last year on congestion pricing, and the idea there is, and and there's there are a lot of terms for how uh, drivers might be charged to use roadways. So, road user fees, um, vehicle miles traveled fees is one example of a um, road user fee. Um, but I'm specifically talking about congestion pricing here, which is the idea that drivers are charged to access heavily used roadways, um, generally at times when the demand for those roadways is, is going to be higher. Um, so for example, like during peak commute hours, and um, again, that a lot of this might shift with the pandemic, we can maybe talk about that later. But, um, you know, the, the goal of a congestion pricing charge is to mitigate congestion by encouraging drivers to not uh, drive at those those times um, when there is a lot of traffic. Uh, and, you know, 
potentially to have them find other routes or ideally to switch to other modes of transportation. Um, and so the basis of our report is that um, congestion pricing is a policy idea that's gaining a, a ton of traction, or at least prior to the pandemic. Again, it's some of it's shifted, um, I think, since then, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how the tone changes now that we're sort of emerging from the pandemic and, and whether cities are exploring this again. But the idea is that uh, at least prior to the pandemic, it was gaining a ton of traction fast in the United States. Um, but I think some of the hesitancy to get to your question is that it's also a very new topic in many ways in the U.S. And, you know, there are plenty of um, technical and, and engineering challenges to implementing the policy. But there's also a, a bunch of institutional and communication and political challenges. And so that's what our report does as we walk through some of those and, and you know, how city leaders, so our elected officials, uh, civic leaders, advocates, and um, agency practitioners might think through the different challenges and the ways that other places have addressed those. But I, I really think that this, um, the idea that this is something that changes the status quo, um, at least here in the U.S., drivers are, are so accustomed to thinking of, again, this gets back to the behavioral science or the psychology aspect of it, thinking of, of the roads as free. I mean, sure, you pay to um, fill up your tank with gas, and gas is uh, famously um, inexpensive here in the United States. And so it's certainly it, it affects um, uh, some, some folks that uh, don't have the ability to pay more than others, but by and large... Uh, filling up your tank with gas is, is pretty cheap here in the United States. And many of the other expenses um, that are associated with, with car ownership are, um, you know, not as steep as they maybe could be to deter people from driving, uh, people that have the means, I should say. And so, you know, if, if you're coming at it from this mindset of feeling like uh, this is a, you know, it's, it's a fact of life and um, it's a, it's a fairly cheap way to get around. Then all of a sudden having, being confronted with the, the potential of having to pay for using roads, which you perceive as free is uh, that doesn't feel right for a lot of, a lot of drivers and a lot of policymakers that they elect. And so, um, you know, I think there's this, um, it's 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 a divergence from the status quo, and I think that's that's kind of what the um, a lot of the pushback is, and why it hasn't gained more traction. Um, what's interesting though is you know you think of going to see a movie, um, and that's something where we we pay more to go at a at um, the kind of peak time. So if you're going to a matinee, you're not going to have to pay as much money, but if you go during the the time that everybody's trying to go, you will have to pay more. That's something that has been kind of ingrained into our culture in a way that um, paying for for the use of roadways just has not. And it's one of the things I find puzzling that it's it, it that it's seen as so controversial and and politically unacceptable because. Certainly, a lot of the models or ideas I've seen pushed around are that you'd take existing taxation and you'd raise the same revenue in a different way. And therefore, if you're raising the revenue from the most congested roads, you're making those roads clearer, which you know, no one likes sitting in traffic. And actually, for people using the uncongested roads, they might get a cheaper journey than they get now. And if you're in a rural area where there is no alternative, that then why the hell should you be paying this, exactly the same fuel taxes and road taxes and vehicle taxes as people in crowded cities who have got choices? And so it feels to me that this shouldn't 
this shouldn't be as controversial, but it, you know, my God, it clearly is. Why? Well, first, two questions, I suppose. One is, why is it perceived as so controversial? And secondly, do you know if there's any evidence as to what people actually think about it? Because you know, when 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 this the last time this was nearly tried in the UK, the government looked at it in 2007, and there was this guy who created something called the Drivers Alliance and got a massive petition on the government website and scared them off. And I was never as convinced that actually he had as many people behind him. I think I like over a million signatures. But actually, I suspected that there was a quieter majority who probably thought this was quite a good idea. And that's what some opinion poll data suggested. What have you learned about what people see a thought to think and what they actually think? And if they're the same thing? Yeah, so that's that's interesting because in in probably anywhere that that congestion pricing has been um, uh, proposed, um, there is typically uh, polling of drivers and, and and citizens in an area of what they think of it beforehand. And unsurprisingly, it is it is not seen as um, a favorable policy. It's a new tax. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know pulled on any kind of tax would not uh, be in favor of it before it's put in place. But um, in, in our report, and, and we actually um, traveled to Stockholm and, and London to look at uh, the congestion pricing infrastructure and, and to learn from um, stakeholders that were in, involved in getting those uh, programs off the ground in, in both of those places. Um, in both of them, in both of those those places, there was initially the the pushback that that you're mentioning, and, and that I think is so common here in in polling in the United States. And by and large, you know, once the the programs were piloted or and put in place, uh, people saw the benefits of it. And so I think it's it's one of those things. It's it's not tangible. Maybe it's it's hard to. Um, see, you're only thinking of it in terms of the the drawbacks and how it would negatively affect you before it's in place without really thinking through, okay, well, this this will actually benefit me because, you know, my commute um, might be uh, a little bit faster, um, you know, not thinking of it in terms of the, just the general regional economic benefits um, that, that will happen when it's in place. I mean, sure, it is it is something that um, you'll have to, again, depending on how it's designed, maybe uh, either pay a higher uh, toll or find a different route or find a different mode of transportation. And, and that's something that I think there's some inertia. People don't like having to, to change their, um, their, their behaviors. But, um, you know, I think the, the end result is that people, once these are in place, people generally like it. Um, and so that's, uh, it's, it's the classic, you know, it's just, it's hard to envision how um, it will affect you, except in negative ways until it's actually in place. We had a election very recently for, for the mayor of London, and it was virtually a single issue campaign, as they often are uh, about, about transport matters. And the incumbent mayor, you know, promised to um, invest in more cycle lanes and to close roads. And um, the main challenger promised to repeal the congestion charge and and, and reduce road taxes and and, and lost. And you know, we, 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 it was almost a referendum on whether people like this stuff. And the answer was, yeah, they do like this stuff. And yet the, the zone for congestion charging in London has not changed since the day that it started. And no one is seriously suggesting changing it. And it, it feels really strange to me that we can basically prove that people like it when it's there and yet find it so hard to envisage expanding it. 
Right, right. And but one thing that has changed there is the uh, the ultra low emission zone, which I think is a, a nice evolution. Um, you know, I, and this happened in Stockholm too, where the congestion charge was put in place, and it was so effective <laughs> that um, it, actually the the charge initially, and I think this might have been the case in London too, where the charge um, initially exempted drivers of of um, uh, electric vehicles or other low emitting vehicles. And um, at least in Stockholm, they had to um, take away that exemption for those kinds of drivers because the charge was so effective that people were switching to EVs. And, um, you know, then the congestion problem became <laughs> became a problem again. And so they had to um, instate uh, an ultra low emission zone and, and um, you know, kind of expand the way that the, the program worked to uh, to continue keeping drivers of all kinds of vehicles out. So I think there there are ways that that um, it can evolve, um, and that's something our report talks about is just being nimble in the design of the program to you know account for different future uses. Maybe implementing also a vehicle miles um, uh, fee, which I think is something that's being proposed in London um, by by uh, policy researchers at least. Um, and so you know thinking of it in different ways. But one of those um, the things that you know you might need to be nimble on is thinking of uh, expanding the geography as needed. Are there any other cities? I mean, London, Stockholm, Singapore. Um, are there any other places that have experimented with this stuff, or are are we still a relatively small and niche niche group of places? So yeah. So and this is where it's interesting. Congestion pricing can take different forms, um, and we talk about this a little bit in our report. So the most common way of thinking about it is cordon or area wide charging, and so this is where any vehicle that enters into a defined geographic area is charged a fee. Um, and this works really well for downtown areas that are surrounded by waters and have fewer entry points um, on, on which tolling can be conducted. Um, so commonly, you know, this is used on bridges. There's just fewer entry points. And so it's easier to toll the cars that are entering the zone. Um, and but uh, London is an example, though, of, of a place that um, you know, is maybe not as uh, water restricted, but, but still has successfully implemented it. Stockholm certainly an example that is uh, surrounded by water, and so there's there's just fewer entry points. Um, Milan has also uh, done this. New York is is uh, on the precipice. It seems like it is. It's a long time coming, and it it kept getting delayed um, in part because of the Trump administration. Um, but it's it's now moving forward. Although there's I think some local issues now that are um, you know might be be stalling it. But um, we are hopefully going to have a formal congestion pricing program here in the U.S. in New York. Um, but so that's all on the cordon or area-wide charging side. There's a, def a different form, though, that um, I think folks often forget to think about, which is um, corridor charging. And so this is uh, already in use fairly commonly in the United States. And this is where tolls or fees are applied to specific corridors or lanes on a road or highway, such as high occupancy toll lanes. Um, and so uh, here in, I'm in the, the Washington DC region, um, we have a highway just outside of the, the downtown area that, um, uh, you know, drivers pay a toll, drivers of single occupancy vehicles pay a toll um, to use the toll lanes. And in that program, what's what's really great about that, and I think um, at the heart of, of, of a well-designed congestion pricing policy is that um, the, the revenue from that program goes to not expanding the roadway, which is is what you know often does, and and I think we would say that um, you know that's that's not um, at the heart of a well-designed congestion pricing program, but 
the revenue in this case goes uh, to investments in other modes of transportation. So, you know, expanding bicycle and pedestrian facilities, improving transit, maybe adding service for, for the, the transit system here. And so that's uh, that's one of the, the tenets of our report is that, um, you know, any revenue that's generated from congestion pricing should go back either into operating that system, uh, operating the congestion pricing system, or, you know, really ideally should should uh, be allocated to improving other modes of transportation um, and ideally shared and active modes of transportation. And you mentioned earlier that there are communication and political obstacles, and we've covered those a bit. You also mentioned engineering obstacles. Um, what are the main engineering obstacles to wider implementations of congestion pricing? The technology is, is always evolving, and you know it might um, it, certainly it, it might involve the overhead um, structures that that have cameras that collect a charge. I think looking at other technologies that are phone based or, or GPS based. Um, that gets into privacy concerns, but um, you know, just a, there's a, a number of different ways to think about this. Um, and so, you know, figuring out how the program is going to be be designed is is certainly one of the challenges. And what are the main benefits? You know, I, I, I've asked a lot about what the challenges are, uh, and I, I feel like some of the benefits are obvious. But actually, you've you've researched this properly. What were the main benefits you found of implementing some form of road pricing or congestion charging? Right. So I think um, in so obviously the a congestion charge, the, the most direct uh, effect that would happen is that it reduces congestion. But in so doing, um, you know, by reducing congestion, you can also um, improve productivity of people that are driving. And so if you're not having to sit in traffic uh, downtown just to get to the office, um, you know, you're, you're automatically gaining time. Um, a reduction in, in car crashes, although um, that's that's a little bit more complicated because um, you know I think there's plenty of evidence that people sitting in traffic and thus driving slower is actually a little bit safer uh, because counterintuitively it's safer because um, you know people just aren't speeding. That's one of the reasons you know with the the pandemic um, with fewer cars on the road we actually saw more road fatalities at least here in the U.S which is so un unfortunate. And I, I think it goes to, you know, we need better road design as well to um, road design and enforcement to ensure that people are, are not um, encouraged to speed. But I, I think there, there um, could be other benefits in terms of, you know, fewer car crashes of people, you know, not sitting in, in stop and go traffic. Um, certainly with, with reduced congestion, there's reduced e emissions, um, carbon emissions, as well as local pollution. That's one of the, the major benefits. Um, and then less roadway damage. So if you have fewer cars on the road, um, there's, there's less damage to the actual uh, road infrastructure. So you mentioned carbon emissions there. Um, I don't know if you've done any research in this, but one of the questions that I'm interested to understand is why when vehicles have become so much more fuel efficient in recent decades why carbon emissions from transport haven't fallen because they don't really seem to have done they've stayed pretty much on a level what's causing that disparity is that something that that you guys have looked into at all a bit yeah so um in short i think it's because more people are driving uh, at least here that's the trend is that um yes vehicles have become more efficient 
uh, in the U.S., vehicles have also become bigger, though. Um, and, and we saw with the Trump administration a rollback in the, um, the fuel efficiency standards for vehicles that might be changing um, with the, the new Biden administration in place. But um, right. So vehicles have become bigger. More people are driving. And so, um, you know, it's this is all very related. So more cars on the road um, that are sitting in congestion um, and, and contributing to emissions. So. Um, even with with fuel efficiency gains, I think just the increase in volume of of um, drivers and traffic is is uh, kind of keeping emissions high and and raising. The bigger vehicles thing is interesting. I, I've certainly noticed walking down the street I live in, the increasing proportion of cars that are SUVs um, compared to five ten years ago, and even as you move to a full electrification, which is going to be you know, many decades away before every car is electric. But even when they are, if they continue to become bigger and more require more energy, then you're still creating a huge burden on the electricity grid to power more and more electric cars, which ultimately still has to be powered somehow. And is, is that electricity generation sustainable? Is there going to be the sustainable generation capacity? Um, we don't, you know, electric cars aren't necessarily all of the answer if we're continuing to consume more and more energy through using more bigger and bigger cars. Right. That's right. And, um, it, you know, I think it's, it's promising again, um, I'm speaking from a U.S. perspective, but I know the electricity sector is, is becoming cleaner, but, but not entirely. And, and I think there are still some improvements to be made with, um, cleaning up the electricity sector that supplies power for electric vehicles. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're not entirely there yet, but I do, Again, just getting back to a simple, um, uh, just the geometry of cities, and 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 you know what I was saying earlier about um, having cities that that really function and and uh, serve the needs of people, so that people can access the the services and and opportunities that um, uh, that they need. You know, traffic and congestion um, are not going to improve if if everybody is moving around in their own vehicle, even if it's electric. And so. Um, you know, I, I think as we think about uh, what sustainability looks like in the future and, and what meeting uh, climate goals looks like, shared transportation, shared and active transportation absolutely have to be a part of the equation. So final, final question from me, based on all the various bits of research that you and your organization have done, what's your best prediction of the future for where we're going to be in terms of you know, transportation? congestion pricing, um, your sustainability, what do you think will and will not get done in the next you know, 10 years? Because this feels like an absolutely crucial 10 years in terms of the climate agenda. Oh, that's interesting. Big question too. Um, yeah, I think I think um, kind of what we were just talking about, I think this the move to electrification is, is really promising. I think there will be some gains there. I, I think for the reasons that we just talked about, it's um, not going to be enough. And I also think, um, uh, you know, there, there are plenty of political headwinds to, um, to getting those visions enacted. And so, you know, it's one thing to state goals, but I think having policies in place that can support those goals and public willingness, um, to, to change, but, um, you know, part of the public willingness aspect is having leaders that are willing to be bold um, and and to take a stance and to say, you know, 
this is going to change. It's and and here's why this is a good thing. Um, actually, to bring this back to congestion pricing, one of the reasons that uh, on our study tour when we visited London. Um, we heard from, from stakeholders there that the mayor at the time, Ken Livingston, I think was his name, um, he was a, a champion for the congestion pricing policy in London. And, you know, there, there was initially this this really strong public pushback and, and um, hesitancy against the policy. But, you know, the, the policy really had this champion in the, the mayor and, and he was very uh, bold in, in his idea of it. And I think that's what at least what we heard um, pushed it kind of over the edge and 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 ultimately allowed uh, public support to to gain hold. And you know, I've um, to bring this back to your question, thinking about the the future of transportation, I think there is so much um, while there are political headwinds, I think there's so much to be excited about in terms of just the types of things that our leaders are thinking about. I think you know I, I've been in in Washington for let's see four or five years now, and just the amount of attention that climate policy has has received in the short time that I've been here uh, is really staggering to you know sit back and think on on how much the vision for um, enacting bold bold climate policies has changed. And so you know I think I think having that kind of political leadership um, is is really so important in moving the needle. Um, and so again, it's it's in part setting really ambitious goals, but then having political leaders that are willing to um, take a risk and and enact those goals. And, and that's something that I feel is really promising in the transportation space right now is um, just, you know, it seems like there's a lot of momentum toward, toward change. And so, um, you know, that's something to be excited about. And what are the, what, what are you working on at the moment? What can we expect to see coming out from, from Inatrans? We are working on a report right now on transit uh, cost and delivery. So the, this idea that it, it seems to take longer and cost more to build rail transit in the United States. Um, although, you know, that's that's kind of um, uh, the traditional narrative, but we're finding that, you know, there are, are a lot of challenges um, really across the world with with building um, rail transit. Um, you know, looking at the crossrail in, in London is um, kind of an interesting thing that we, we've kept an eye on as well. And so, um, you know, uh, thinking about how to better deliver rail rail transit is, is really exciting, um, something that we're working on right now. And so that report will be coming out later this year. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure three years ago, we, we Londoners would have been coming over to show you how it was how how to do it, and then um, then we discovered that yeah, maybe we shouldn't be doing that after all. Fantastic, <laughs> Rianne. Thank you so much for joining me. That was absolutely fascinating. Great. Thank you, Thomas. Well, that concludes the freewheeling podcast for this week. Thank you very much indeed for joining me, and thank you to my guest, Rianne Eby of the Eno Center in Washington D.C. I'll be back next week with another guest on the Freewheeling podcast. If you feel like jumping onto the podcast store to rate and review Freewheeling, that would be fantastic. Otherwise, I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye.